In the summer of 2016, I left San Francisco to stay in a tiny town in the Nevada desert for three months. It was between semesters, I didn't have an apartment to crash in, and I had family to see. I'd just finished up my second year in art school, and I planned to spend the time holed up in my mother's house working on my portfolio, a series of illustrations based on a story I just couldn't let go of. I did do that, for the most part. After setting up a workspace in the corner of the living room, I spent hours hunched over my drawing tablet, hashing out designs and rendering portraits. It was stiflingly hot most of the day. Not surprising, it was the desert, after all. But with only one swamp cooler to help with the heat, I found myself sweating as I tried to beat a story I loved into an illustrative shoebox. I'm not sure when I finally cracked. I don't remember standing by the kitchen counter one blistering morning, for instance, wondering why I bothered to drink a hot cup of instant coffee, the only type available in a heavily Mormon town, and having an aha moment. I kind of wish I could remember it that way, but I don't. I remember spending my days in the corner of the living room, and then at some point, spending my evenings at the kitchen table, writing the first clumsy paragraphs of what would go on to be Consort's glory. I started writing in the evenings because it was cooler then, and I didn't mind having my laptop perched on my legs quite so much. Sometimes I would sit at the table, and sometimes I would curl up in bed. It was nice, and something about not spending every spare moment working myself to the artistic bone felt forbidden, delightfully so. What would my instructors say, I wondered if they could see me putting hours into a novel instead of working on my life drawing, my screen cap redraws, my master studies, my all-important portfolio. To give you an example of the kind of pressure art students work under, I had one professor say that I should be drawing a page of new objects every day. I had another who said that not filling up a sketchbook cover to cover every few months meant you were slacking off. Yet another asked for 30 hours a week on their homework alone, I know a few fellow artists who were encouraged to learn how to draw ambidextrously, just in case they blew out their wrists before they graduated. In that moment, though, I found that I didn't care. Or if I did, it was easy enough to justify the waste of time. Creativity was creativity, right? I didn't dwell on the fact that it felt like someone had loosened a belt around my chest every time I sat down to write. I didn't think too hard about the fact that the words spilled out in ways my drawings never did. Naturally, with more joy than teeth-gritted technical precision. Without the sharp edge of desperation that soured every single drawing. So one evening, as the sun began to set behind the scrubby hills of the high desert, I sat on the bed, my dog curled against my side, and wrote. The words were clunky, but the voice was strong. Margot Good's voice, the woman who had lived in my head for a year, who came fully formed into my life almost out of nowhere. The story, immature as it was, rushed onto the page. I breathed easier. I didn't worry about my future when I wrote. I could let that belt fall away for just a moment and chase something I didn't yet have a name for. That evening, my mother worked on dinner in the next room. The temperature was mild, 
and the tenuous balance between what I wanted and what I felt I could do remained. And then someone set off a bomb across the street. Hi and welcome to the Kingdom of Thirst podcast. My name is Abigail Kelly, and this is the story of how my book, how this podcast, to no small degree, came to be. There are hundreds of different ways to start a book, and sometimes there are books that need to start a hundred different ways to come to life. When I started writing what would go on to become Consort's Glory, it was in the margins of a sketchbook. I wasn't planning on writing a book. I hadn't written one since I was 15, around the same time that my ambition to become a novelist died. (laughs) Instead, I turned to art, forcing my creativity and love of characters into a mold that would, inevitably, crack. Like I said, I don't know how or when Margot Good came into the world. I didn't sit down and think, Oh yes, let's make a healer with uh, red hair. She'll be a witch who can heal with her touch. Um, maybe a dash of a tragic backstory. Hmm, how scrumptious would that be? No. Looking back through my sketchbooks, it's like she was always there. She appears in the earliest pages of the moleskin I used in my first semester of art school. Not necessarily exactly as she appears today, but her. Margot Eloise Good. Healer. Granddaughter of the matriarch of the Good Coven. A strong woman with an incredible ability to heal the sick to take away pain with a touch of her hands. Before there was a new protectorate, before there was Theodore, before there was a tower on Treasure Island in the San Francisco Bay, there was Margot. I tried to fit her in every school project I could. There are paintings and 3D models and costume designs and even essays locked away in boxes that all go back in some way to her and her story. The funny thing was, she didn't even really have a story. Prior to 2016, I barely knew her. The only time I spent with her was in those rare moments when I could doodle or hash out a line or two of dialogue in my sketchbook. For months, she sat adrift in a blank world. In a similar way, I don't really remember how Theodore came about either. I can fill in the gaps a little bit easier with him, though. I know that I needed a foil for my small-town, compassionate, sharp-tongued healer. What could be better than someone ruthless enough to kill his only living family to keep an entire city under his thumb? I've mentioned it before, but Theodore was, perhaps obviously, supposed to be the villain— I imagined him and his family as supernatural mob bosses, and Margot as the healer roped into their bloody madness. Slowly, in fits and starts, between 30-hour projects and night classes and failed relationships and near-miss mental breaks, the 
world around Margot came alive. A plot developed, despite the fact that my illustrative work really didn't allow for it. Doesn't matter, I thought. I just changed the kind of work I wanted to do. Quickly disillusioned with my initial plan of getting into comics due to the general hostility towards women and the toxicity of the industry on the whole, I pivoted to more conceptual illustration for film and television. That was the vague plan, anyway. To be honest, I didn't like much of any of it. I wanted to draw characters and I wanted to flesh out their worlds. Drawing props and backgrounds and buildings was fun, but when I actually sat down to do assignments, I only wanted to tell my stories, my characters in my worlds. I was good at drawing and painting. I got good grades. I even made the frickin' Dean's List, which never meant anything to anyone, really. But that didn't mean it ever felt right. I was only good because I spent every waking minute of my life forcing myself to be. I slaved over my work. I barely ate or slept or socialized. At my worst, I used to walk home, timing my footsteps to the beat of a desperate internal mantra. Work harder. Work harder. Work harder. Work harder. On one of those trips home to my crowded dorm, I dropped a charcoal portrait I'd gotten a dreaded bee on in a puddle right outside the door to my building. I remember watching it fall from far away, my heart sinking. I'd had the opportunity to make corrections and return the portrait to my instructor for a better grade. But as soon as the drawing, a massive, moody portrait of a classmate, hit the muddy puddle, the chance was lost. I was devastated. Not because of the portrait, which I didn't give two shits about, and not because of a clutch of wincing construction workers saw it happen. I stood there and stared at the soaked portrait, feeling like my whole world had caved in because I'd failed. I can hear you wondering, Abigail, how is getting a B a failure? Listen, folks, I know it wasn't logical. I knew it at the time, too. But when you feel like your whole future rests on improving technical skills at light speed, winning the praise and recommendations of your instructors, and getting a job before you leave school, yeah, a B can feel pretty fucking devastating. So when I say that it was a forbidden joy to write, I really mean it. In this mental landscape, where I held on to my sanity through pure, teeth-gritted will, sitting down to write a story that wouldn't make me a better, more hireable artist was mind-bogglingly indulgent. But I couldn't stop myself. My sketchbook had begun to fill up not with those vital new object drawings, but with words. Snatches of dialogue turned into full paragraphs. Paragraphs turned into scenes. Notes fleshed themselves out into plot points. By the time I got to Nevada for that strange summer, I was bursting with the need to write this story. I had a plan to turn it into a whopper of a portfolio, too. A narrative journal penned by a reporter given access to the good coven, full of pictures and paintings to tell the story of Margot's life. But I needed to write it all down to make it work, didn't I? 
it was a perfect excuse. Seizing on it, I spent a long trip at a cabin with no electricity, Wi-Fi, or cell reception <laughs> to plot the story in its entirety. I remember going for a walk around the lake, creatively named Fish Lake, in case you're wondering, with my mother and telling her the whole sordid tale. I loved it. I couldn't wait to write it. I couldn't wait to sketch every one of Margot's ancestors to tell the story of how the goods escaped witch burnings and staked out their territory in the Pacific Northwest or how the Soulburns played into it all and... I feel weird saying I was in a bombing. <laughs> Frankly, I feel weird talking about it here. <laughs> It isn't my tragedy. It's not. I wasn't hurt. It was a bad experience at worst. An interesting story at best. But it's not my story. But it does represent a key moment in my life. A pin on which my direction turned, bringing me to this moment. To you. So to keep from fetishizing a tragedy that belongs to another person and another family, I'll keep it short. At sunset, a disgruntled man knocked on the door of the home caddy corner from my mother's. When a mother and her children answered the door, he told them to get out if they wanted to live. Thankfully, they listened to him. What happened next involved a gunshot and two bombs. The bomber died on the street. Debris blew over the entirety of the one-square-mile town. Incredibly, no one else was hurt. <laughs> The worst reported injury was a boy getting his head bonked by some debris as he played in his yard. The bomber's trail led to a trailer home full of weapons in Arizona, and little else the authorities are willing to disclose. To this day, the case remains unsolved and in the FBI's cold case files. If you're curious, there are several articles and even a whole NPR segment dedicated to the Panaka bombing you can look into. Links are provided. As for how the bombing relates to me, and more importantly, Consort's glory, things are much less dire. A large, white-hot, and extremely fucking sharp piece of metal blew through the wall of the bedroom in which I sat writing the first chapters of the book. It slammed through the outside wall and into the opposite one. In the same instant, the lights went out and the air filled with drywall dust. There was no blast that I remember. Um, but that's probably just my brain trying to make sense of all the things that happened at once. I don't remember closing my laptop or grabbing my dog, but I know I did both. I didn't have my glasses on, and I had yet to transition to contacts, so I stumbled in the dusty darkness and called out for my mother. Together, we shoved on some shoes and walked out into the waning sunset to see flames and chaos. People were gathering in the street just outside of our neighbor's house and a telephone pole lay between them and the destruction. Fire burned along those torn and writhing lines. Why I bring this up at all is not because it's one of the wildest things I've ever experienced, although it definitely ranks. It's because as I stood there on our little patch of lawn, listening to our neighbors talk about the corpse in the street and the crackle of flames as they began to consume the telephone pole, I turned to look at the hole in the side of our house. I measured the distance between where I sat just moments before and the huge, jagged hole 
as best I could without my glasses on. The sun dipped into a violet horizon, the last streaks of pink and tangerine orange fading as the lights of a fire truck grew brighter in the distance. The hole was on the opposite side of the room, maybe 10 feet from where I sat, if I'm being generous, and about mm, chest high. Later, when we returned to the house, I discovered that what blew through the wall was a piece of inch-thick steel, razor-sharp, and so hot I actually had to pick it up with a kitchen towel. It was almost exactly the length of my hand from the bottom of my palm to the tip of my middle finger. We later learned that it was uh, probably a piece of the bomb's casing. I later found several smaller but no less warped and sharpened bits scattered around the yard. I, I will never forget doing the calculation of height, force, and distance. If it had gone through the other side of the wall, it would have hit me directly in the middle or through my thighs, my legs having been curled to hold my laptop as I relaxed on the bed. I did the math, ran a quick estimate on how likely I would have been to survive a hit that blew a hole in my house before turning to my mother and blandly saying, I guess I should finish that book, huh? When presented with a stark reminder of my mortality, my first thought was not, holy shit, I'm lucky to be alive. It was not, I should call the guy I've been seeing and tell him how much I care about him. It was not, I should really travel more. It was about my book. It was about the book that I shouldn't have been writing. It was about a book I barely knew how to write. It was about a book I am sharing with you today. One that I wrote while occasionally glancing at the chunks of metal, now rusted, drywall still crusted around the edges, that live just above my computer today. A macabre reminder of what really truly matters to me. Life goes on. I returned to San Francisco. I moved with my best friend into a tiny, nearly lightless apartment we called the shoebox, and I returned to the grind of classes. My heart wasn't in it, though. How could it be, when I had been at the point of a piece of jagged metal, forced to see what I really wanted to do? I couldn't admit that, though. My biggest fear will always be failure. It dogs me every second of every day. And it was, if you can believe it, worse then. Admitting that I was actively struggling to draw anything that semester, that all I wanted to do was write and write and write, would have been an admission of failure. A failure as an artist, a failure as a student, a failure as a daughter, a granddaughter, a sister. I couldn't breathe through the fear of that failure. Believe it or not, I planned to stick it out. I wasn't going to give in to that failure without a bloody fucking fight, even if it cost me every last shred of possible happiness. 
Even if it scoured me to the bone, I was going to do it. It's convenient, then, that art school is expensive as hell. Unable to afford it, I dropped out. For a while, I was a collapsed heap of directionless misery. I got a job as a nanny to support myself, and in an instant, my entire identity was wiped away. No longer a star student, no longer an illustrator, a failure her family could only be ashamed of. Truly, is there anything more shameful than having an artist in the family? Yes, I imagined. An artist who can't do art is much, much worse. I spent many evenings on the train coming home from work, staring out the window, holding back tears as I wondered, what is the goddamn point of me? It was the lowest I have ever been. I was humiliated by my sudden inability to make art, by my perceived failure, and by a lifelong fear that I was not and never had been worth a damn. How could I be when I wasn't good at anything. All my life, I had felt a slow press of suffocation that came from my inability to do anything of value. I wasn't a good singer or a dancer or actress. I wasn't pretty. I wasn't good at school. I struggled with reading and thought for almost 23 years that I was just too dumb to grasp most subjects. I was a terrible athlete, a mediocre conversationalist, a serial single, shitty at math, bad with friends, daydreamed too much, and couldn't do anything well, even when I threw my whole body and soul into the endeavor. And now, after all the time and work and money I'd put into forcing myself to be good at something, no matter the pain it caused me, I couldn't even do that. It snapped something fundamental inside of me. I crawled, internally wounded, to the only thing that had ever given me real joy writing. For the first time in my life, it wasn't about being good at it. In fact, no one besides my best friend Paige and my brother even knew that I was doing it at all. I wrote more or less in secret. That is how the first draft of what would eventually be called Consort's Glory came to life. A 660-page book riddled with plot holes, character inconsistencies, bad prose, and cliches knitted me back together. I wrote and I wrote and I wrote until one day it felt like the poison of failure had been drained out of me. I knew my book was bad. <laughs> Didn't matter. I was fucking delighted it existed. <laughs> I spent hours talking four pages ear off about it. About Margot and Theodore and their San Francisco. I wrestled with my professional ambition for months, but it was a losing battle. The moment Paige and I made the trip to the print shop to have that ridiculous... <laughs> 
ridiculous book bound. I knew what I wanted. I was going to be a writer. And for the first time in my life, I truly didn't care if I failed. Most first books are bad. Unless you are some sort of genius or just happen to strike gold on your first swing of the pickaxe, your first try at anything is going to be mediocre at best. Now, at this point in my life, I'd had over a decade of writing fanfiction under my belt, not to brag. I spent the better part of my teen years studying how to write books and taking the gentle critique of my fellow fanfic writers. That being said, my first attempt at writing the book you know, it was fucking abysmal. I mean, like, wicked super duper bad, okay? It was an epic young adult yarn that made no sense, had three different plots woven into it, and like, no romance at all. The world building was shallow as hell, and at one point I actually cut out 100 pages from the middle. The only words I had to change to make the two halves fit together? The chapter numbers. Like I said, it was bad. My only saving grace was that I knew it was bad. I didn't try to query it. The term used to refer to pitching literary agents your work in the hope that they will volunteer to represent you and sell your work to publishers, in case you didn't know. I did what I would go on to realize is maybe my best trait. I made a plan. How do I get better at this? I asked myself. I wanted to make Margot's story shine. I also knew that I didn't yet have the tools to do that. So I looked at my resources. I got online and I discovered a writer's group for people under 30 that met weekly clear across town. I showed up to the Ethiopian cafe they met at every Sunday for over a year. I enrolled myself in the creative writing program at my local community college, which was and is still blessedly free for residents. Thank you, San Francisco. I got straight A's, but um, regrettably never actually took a creative writing class. Don't ask me how that happened. I don't really know. I looked up my closest bookstore and proceeded to go to every single author event they hosted for one whole ass calendar year. I always sat in the middle of the front row and I always asked the first question in the Q&A segment, just so the authors would never feel like people weren't listening. Sometimes I was one of only a handful of guests. Always I listened and tried to learn, even when 99% of the authors wrote books of no interest to me. I got to know the staff. To be honest, I didn't really give them a choice. <laughs> After giving them my resume, and that resume being lost for several months, hi cat, I snagged a job there. I'd never worked <laughs> retail a day in my life. Uh, I had no idea how the book industry even worked. I didn't care. Nothing could stop me. At the same time, I was still a nanny, and I hadn't yet told anyone besides Paige and my brother that I wrote a book. When I finally had that printed draft in hand, I sucked it up, and I did it all at once. In a series of phone calls, one after the other, that I'm sure baffled my various family members, I told them what I'd done and what I planned to do. It felt monumental to me. They reacted with a polite interest, 
that you can expect from someone hearing about a sloppily written book in a new, low-level retail job. In all fairness to them, it was both of those things. <laughs> My book was bad, and I was hired as a gift wrapper slash book stalker while also being a nanny and going to school full-time. It wasn't, shall we say, a glamorous pivot, but it was huge to me. It felt like I was scraping myself off of a sticky floor. I was going to do something that mattered only to me, and that was fucking liberating. Somewhere in the delirious six months that followed, while I worked two jobs and hustled at school, I wrote a better version of that book. At one point, I used a precious, infinitely rare full day off to sit in a cafe for nearly nine straight hours, writing the last 15,000 words of that book. Don't get me wrong, it was still bad. Better doesn't mean good. Margot was a fully fleshed character, but everyone else, Theodore included, were flat. The world building was still about as deep as that puddle I dropped that portrait into. I was on to something, though, so I took the plunge and began my first foray into queering. It went poorly. I'll save you the misery of listening to me recount how I slaved over my query letter and the opening pages of my novel for months, only to have every single email return as a rejection without a single word of explanation or advice. I sent out nearly 30 pitches over the course of that May. When I finally got the last one in, I sat on my kitchen floor and I cried. And then I got up, confirmed with myself that I wanted to continue on the path, and kept going. I wrote Concert's Glory again. And again. And again. Theodore gradually turned into a beautiful, soft-hearted elf with a devotion to his loved ones strong enough to create the bedrock of his personality. Margot aged up incrementally. A little more romance inched into the story with every pass. Sitting in one of my dreadfully plentiful math classes one day, I found myself doodling in my sketchbook again. The first drawing I actually felt proud of in over a year spread over the pages of my moleskin. And it was Theodore and Margot squaring off against one another. Theodore had a smug smile on his face, his hands on his hips, suit jacket missing. And Margot appeared thoroughly vexed with his whole attitude. I stared at it for what felt like a long time, shocked by the chemistry I could feel sizzling between them. Not wanting to break my stride, I flipped the page and I kept drawing. Theodore and Margot curled up together on a makeshift nest of blankets and pillows on the floor. Theodore and Margot, their hands intertwined. Theodore and Margot, tangled up in one another. Theodore and Margot, ready to take on the world together. It's a romance, I remember thinking, stunned. Of course it's a romance! I felt silly for having written the damn thing so many times and not seen it. But once the thought was there, I couldn't take it back. It wasn't just Margot's story, it was Theodore's story too. It was about them. 
it had always been about them. I just had to learn how to tell their story. I quit my job as a nanny and worked nearly full-time at the bookshop. I learned the ins and outs of how bookselling worked. I learned how to pitch a book in 30 seconds and how to spot what publishers care about and what they don't. I met authors and went to a single fateful bookselling convention where I bilked a man out of his Raffle One box set and awkwardly chased V.E. Schwab into her Uber. I asked my bookselling friends for their opinions on my plot, my characters. I wrote the book again. <laughs> when I finished the draft, my manager, Kat, frequent guest on the podcast, got me a monstrously chocolatey cupcake from the bakery near the shop and left me a hand-drawn sign congratulating me for the accomplishment. She even doodled herself reading it, and me standing on a pile of gold, presumably after selling it for a five-figure deal to Scrooge McDuck or something. I still have that sign, by the way. It's taped to the back of my desk, in the nook where my monitor sits. I often forget about it, and get a big, stupid grin when I catch a glimpse of it while cleaning or moving things around. I don't do as often as I should, but we're not going to talk about that. I didn't query the book again for a while. Instead, still feeling kind of unsure about it, I moved on to other projects. I had an idea for a ghost story, niggling in the back of my mind. I had a fae story, too, and another story about witches set in a totally different world. I was ready to stretch myself and let Consort's glory sit in a drawer for a while, waiting for when I was mm, skilled enough to really make it shine. And then COVID happened. Like many people, my life changed March 16th, 2020. San Francisco, and consequently my bookshop, shut down. I was and have continued to be extremely lucky healthy, I had a good place to live, and I had roommates to keep me sane. More or less. I also had a constructive use for my new isolation. Writing. I took it as a challenge. If I really wanted to be a full-time writer, could I hack it? There was no better time to figure that out. I planned to spend every waking moment writing just to see if I could. Turns out that, yes, I actually can do that. And I somehow managed to enjoy it more than I thought I would. Those first uneasy months, I wrote the sequel, now defunct, to Consort's Glory. I rewrote massive stretches of the first novel, too. Finally at a place where I was really, truly happy with it, I queried it again. It was still young adult. The world building was less than it is now to be generous to my past self and only began the romance between Theodore and Margot. But it was something I actually felt was marketable. I was proud of it. Too bad the publishing world went up in flames at the same time that I finally figured out my whole thing. <laughs> I got a lot of positive responses, a massive change from my original attempt, and even a request for a full manuscript. But ultimately, it was bad timing. Agents, like the rest of us, were paralyzed by the world events that never seemed to ease up. No one was taking new clients, and those that were 
didn't want to take chances on stuff slightly outside of a box. I got a rejection on that full manuscript, and I, for what felt like the final goddamn time, put Consort's glory away. I moved on to other things. The Kingdom of Thirst podcast, for instance. I started the podcast while I waited to hear back on that round of queries. A fun pastime, I thought. (laughs) Never could I have imagined the number of wonderful people it would bring into my life, nor the absolutely absurd things I would say unabashedly on a microphone. (laughs) My path got weirder and a lot more fun, (laughs) even if the rejections hurt just as much as they did that first time. A new series sprang to mind, this time an alternate history where the spiritualist movement never ended. I wanted to write about people falling in love with ghosts in a world where that was more or less normal. So I just did the damn thing. My momentum didn't stop there. I wrote the first book in 45 days, I submitted it to a mentorship program immediately, then sailed right into writing the second book in the series. Just as I completed that, I found out I'd been accepted into that mentorship program. For six months, I'd work with an incredible author to spice up my book, craft a pitch, and if I was lucky, stack myself an agent. Through, shall we say, a series of increasingly exasperating misadventures, that last part didn't happen. The actual mentorship was fantastic and helped me polish the parts of my writing that make me unique. I wrote my first series Bible to flesh out my world building at my mentor's insistence and whipped my manuscript into shape. I got an insane amount of good feedback about the book and wonderful, although still ultimately negative, replies to my query letters. The book that was finally supposed to launch me into the career I wanted, it fell with a splat at my feet. In January of 2021, I started working at a bookshop again. I knew immediately that I had to find a way to get back to writing full-time. I love working at a bookshop. I love my friends, and I love being on that side of the book world. But I don't love it like I love writing. And I never will. So when my grand ambitions for the ghost books cooled, their lack of marketability and here was too villainous vibes a hindrance, I knew I had to figure out a way to support myself doing this ridiculous thing I so desperately wanted to do. I wanted to write romance novels, goddammit, and I was gonna do it even if it killed me. Like I said before, there are hundreds of different ways to start a book. And sometimes there are books that need to start a hundred different ways to come to life. In light of my desperation to find something people want to read, I turned to an old friend, Consort's Glory. I thought, this shouldn't be hard. I already have the books, wanted to, written. Just chop it up and put it in a serialized format. You already did the labor. What's the harm? Well, firstly, past Abigail, I have a question for you. When have you ever made things easier for yourself? The answer is never. As soon as I opened up the old document, I knew things were different. I planned to age everyone up, as I told Paige, and I would turn it into a real romance novel. Easy, right? Fuck no. (laughs) I opened up that document and it was like watching cracks 
spread across a wall until, with a great heaving groan, the whole thing falls away to reveal something you never could have expected waiting for you on the other side. Nirvana, or that first room in Willy Wonka's factory or something. In what felt like an instant, but was really five years and change in the making, every loose, rattling piece of the puzzle slotted together. The world that had never quite worked exploded into vivid color. In a frenzy, I closed the document and I opened a new one. I didn't even glance at it or any of the previous incarnations as I began the furious drafting that would bring us consort's glory as you know it today. My friends shook their heads in disbelief when I explained that I was keeping eh, virtually nothing except the names and rough ability slash social status of the characters from the original drafts. I'd spent so long on the same broken-ass plot that it was hard for them to imagine it any differently. I could, though. I really could. I broke the world down completely. I mean, literally, I took everything I knew and I threw it out with the trash. I wrote a series Bible that is, at last count, 50 pages long and will only get longer. I decided each book would be a standalone, loosely connected with the others. I created a new origin myth, a new pantheon of gods, a new way of explaining magic. I set it in the goddamn future just for fun and just because I could. Screw marketability, I thought. I'm doing this for me. The book I had always dreamed of writing, and the book that I couldn't write until this moment, bloomed into its own living, breathing entity. And this is where I should probably explain what the book is about, huh? If you got this far and don't know what Consort's Glory is about, that's pretty flattering, actually. Thanks for sticking around. To summarize, like a good little bookseller. Consort's Glory is the first book in the New Protectorate series. It follows a witch named Margot, a healer, who is in San Francisco desperately searching for the one person who can stop her magic from eating her alive. At the same time, the elvish man who rules the protectorate, of which San Francisco is the capital, has his sights set on the woman he knows is his consort, his fated mate, if you will. Their paths intersect when someone plants a bomb. See what I did there? in Margot's healing house, throwing her squarely into Theodore's beclawed clutches. It's a near-future urban fantasy romp set in San Francisco of 2045. There's sexy fangs, there's cool magic, there's a fair amount of San Francisco scenery, there's hot coyote shifters. Hell, there's even a three-chapter-long cunnilingus scene no one will ever let me live down. I wanted to write about a healer for as long as I can remember. I've always loved medicine. I even briefly considered going into midwifery, actually. And growing up, my mom was often in pain. I felt helpless a lot. I wanted to take sickness and pain away, but I felt I was too dumb to be a doctor and sadly lacked any magical healing abilities. At about nine or 10, I remember thinking to myself that there was nothing I wouldn't give to be able to touch my mom and take away sickness and pain. I even tried bargaining with the universe, saying that I would be happy to swap places with her if I could help at all. The universe didn't listen. But my mom's doing pretty good now. So I guess it all works out. Hi, Mom. I love you. Ten years later, as I was getting ready to go to work at a job that I was, shall we say, 
utterly unqualified for and desperately disliked? I listened to a program on the History Channel about a kid who claimed to be able to heal with a touch of her hands. I paused, surprised, and turned to watch the TV play for a bit longer than I had time for. I'd heard of people conveying miracles of healing through touch before, but this was a kid claiming they could see inside the body and actively heal what was wrong. A psychic skill, not a religious gift. It has been a fascinating insight looking into exactly where Consort's glory came from, what parts of me exist in its marrow and wiry connective tissue. The assumption that authors layer their own sensual and romantic desires into their work is, as a rule, patently false, but some things are too fundamental to cut out completely. There is a term in publishing that I like. It's not a kind industry, and its reputation for ruthless gatekeeping and heartbreak is well-earned. Occasionally, though, something sweet bubbles up through the miasma. Consort's Glory is what the industry calls my heart's book. The one that I could never give up on, no matter how hard I tried. The book that owned my heart. The book that will always own my heart. It's the best book I've ever written. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I am aware that I have a history with this book that makes it feel goddamn monumental. It's not going to be life-changing for most people. For the few people who stumble upon it, for those of you who have been kind enough to join my Patreon virtually sight unseen, thank you. I hope it brings you a little bit of joy, but don't worry. I don't expect you to read it and think it's the best thing anyone has ever written. It is the first book in what will hopefully be a long and evolving series. It will hopefully be the first, but definitely not the last, of my best books I've ever written books. <laughs> I wrote the version of Consort's Glory you know from scratch in 60 days. I wrote the second draft in 14. In some ways, I'm caught between feeling like this book has taken the longest road <laughs> to being read, and also like it's half-baked, too rushed to be enjoyed by anyone. It is both nearly six years old and also less than four months old. It is the book that made me a writer and, in the grand scheme of things, brought me to you. It is also the book that refused to be written well and couldn't be truly written until I'd given up on it. It's the book I was writing when a bomb threw a Coke can-sized piece of steel through the wall of my bedroom, and the book I wrote to save myself from drowning in a misery so deep and thick I couldn't see a way out. I embarrassed the hell out of myself with this book. I told anyone who would listen, willingly or not, about this book. I ranted about this book. I cried about this book many, many times. No one will ever care about this book as much as I do. Understandably. Ultimately, it is just a love story. Me and my writing. Margot and Theodore. Together, at last. Finally. And this is the part where I tell you that, despite everything I just said, I did not write this book in a vacuum. Consort's Glory could not have been written without the ceaseless, borderline reckless support of the people who love me. All that crippling fear I told you about, all the secrets I kept worrying about what people would think of me when I told them I wanted to give up being an illustrator to write, 
Ridiculous, of course. My brother, whose opinion means so much to me for reasons I cannot rightfully explain, didn't think twice about my admission. The year I wrote in secret, he bought me a book on writing and gamely insisted on reading my first clumsy drafts. Alas, he is not a fan of romance, so he has since dropped out of the pre-release reading squadron, but his heart's still there. My mother and grandmother? Their support was full-throated and high energy from the moment the words left my mouth. My mother is the one who listens to my half-baked business plans. She's the one who insists on new software to make my books beautiful. She's the one who has encouraged a lifetime of creative exploration and never once made me feel less than because I struggled. She's a beautiful, creative, endlessly supportive person. I am lucky to have her, my wonderful, ridiculous Nana, as well as my brother in my corner, cheering me on and kicking my ass whenever I need it. I am indescribably lucky to have the friends and family I do. My extended family includes V and Fred, my salty-ass friends who would drop anything to help me solve a problem or pick me up off the floor when I'm a heap of despair. It also includes my bookshop family, Kat, Brendan, Jessica, and Allie, who fearlessly rearrange schedules to help me provide podcast guest services at a drop of the hat and read my books with an enthusiasm that is, frankly, a little unsettling. I love you all. Thank you for your constant encouragement, unfounded though it often seems, and for forcing me to start Kingdom of Thirst. My life would be super mega boring without you in it. Of course, then there's Paige. My long-suffering best friend, and perhaps one of the kindest people to ever walk this earth. I'm just going to direct this next bit to you. None of these books would exist if not for your constant, unquestioning encouragement. They simply wouldn't. I don't know where I would be, who I would be right now, if not for the long hours you spent by my side as I agonized over my worth and my future. Listener, I mean it when I say that every single word I have ever written, post deciding to become a writer, has passed through Paige's hands. The sacrificing, gorgeous creature isn't even a self-described reader. (laughs) But she took on 660 pages of slop and then every other drop I threw her way for over half a decade with zero complaints. She let me pester her ceaselessly and never once pressured me to find my footing before I was ready. When I moaned about rejection letters, she was there. When I was crippled by anxiety, she was there. When I forgot to eat, she was there. When I stayed up way, way too late to finish a chapter, she was there to yell at me until I went to bed. So when I say that I am thankful, Paige, I really fucking mean it. You are my sister in all of the ways that matter. And you have been a guiding light when I felt like giving up. You are also cute as hell, and I love you. Thank you for everything. Finally, I'm going to say thank you to me. Yeah, that's right. I'm thanking myself. For not giving in to that smothering lack of self-esteem. For putting the words on the page. For picking myself up off the kitchen floor. For making it work even when I felt like I couldn't take a single step forward. I don't know what the future holds. Maybe nothing. 
Perhaps only five people will read Consort's Glory. I have no way of knowing. <laughs> what I can say for sure is that I am proud of myself for doing this ridiculous, self-indulgent thing. It would have been so much easier to keep on my path of self-destruction and soul-scraping desperation, but I didn't. Whether anyone ever cares about this book half as much as I do is irrelevant. It's mine. I made it. I'm proud of it and of myself. That's enough. This is the end of the Consort's Glory episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, that's okay too. We'll be back with our regularly scheduled programming next week. If you did enjoy it though, here's some relevant information for you. Consort's Glory launches this Sunday with two free to read chapters over on my Patreon. In honor of the launch, the prequel for Consort's Glory is also free to read in its entirety for the month of February. A link to that can be found in the description and also at patreon.com slash works by Abigail. If you can't stand the idea of reading Consort's Glory in pieces or just don't like Patreon or can't afford it, I understand. We've been through a whole journey in this podcast. I get it. You can pre-order both the novel and the novella collection containing the prequel on Amazon now. Both will be released on Kindle Unlimited after their release dates as well, so they are accessible in whatever format you prefer. If this episode has whetted your appetite for all things New Protectorate, you might want to head over to Abigail K. Kelly on Twitter or Kingdom Thirst on Instagram. I've got loads of art and teasers loaded up over there. As a small request, if you did enjoy this, it would mean a lot to me if you shared this podcast, this episode, or any other, really, with your friends and slash or on social media. Reviews help too, if you got a minute. As always, you can contact me on the podcast Discord server, link in the description, email me at kingdomofthirst at gmail.com, hit me up on social media, or even send me a real paper letter to my P.O. box address in the description. The music used in this episode was created by Louis Zong, an extremely talented artist and musician who gave the whole internet permission to use his rad tunes because he's cool as hell. You can check out his work as well as his social media in the description below. I'd also like to thank Andrew Machado, the incredible musician slash wizard who created our theme, which I have sprinkled liberally throughout and which you are listening to right now. It's amazing, and you can find his work via the links below. Finally, I want to thank you, the listeners, for sticking with me through this weird, intensely personal episode. You bring an immense amount of joy into my life, and I appreciate every single one of you. Thank you for choosing to spend your minutes with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you next week. Kingdom of Thirst is a member of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and tons of new podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.